One of the things I find that some of us are afraid of is guilt by association. You're afraid of guilt by association. We get nervous sometimes about who we're spending time with, and then we find out, oh, they're a convicted felon. Guilt by association. You know, what does someone think about you? Or if you're starting to spend time with a lot of people who are having trouble with their partying reputation, um, maybe you begin to feel nervous about, well, and how do people think about me? Am I guilty by association? Or perhaps you're a non-party type, and so you hang out with non-party people, but now all of a sudden you're like, I do like to party, but guilt by association. Or the more difficult thing is that in our climate and setting, because of our convictions of Jesus and our obedience to him, we gather as the church. And the church has plenty to be guilty of historically, and we feel the burden of our guilt by association. And so we may try to shield ourselves from our guilt by association, by, by sort of monitoring how much we let on about our lives and we lead a more private life rather than a public life with our faith. It's the very challenge that the people in Thessalonica were experiencing, is that the political climate of their setting meant that as Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, they could be guilty by association. Jesus got crucified in part because of the accusation of sedition against the king, against the emperor, against the empire, against Caesar. Guilt by association had the disciples running scared until the Holy Spirit generated in their life a change so that they no longer cared so much about the opinions of others and the fickle affections of the crowd. But in Thessalonica, this was a fresh problem. A city dedicated to the empire who also was putting tremendous pressure on the Jewish populace. And so the Jewish members of Thessalonica in Acts 17 when they were confronted with this new sect of, that seemed to rise up and say, Jesus is Lord, reacted violently to try to suppress and to differentiate themselves from the Christians who said, Jesus is Lord, rather than Caesar is Lord. And it created a grand protest. It was a mob scene in Acts chapter 17. Such that in the coming days, Paul and his apostolic crew had to leave quietly. Now, interesting enough, Paul's arrival in Thessalonica came for much the same reasons. He got run out of Philippi because allegiance to Jesus was changing the economies. And people were angry. Don't mess with my money. 
Don't mess with my security. Don't make life more difficult for me. This fear of guilt by association and connection with the church is not something new that you and I face. But it's something that was there from the beginning. Because Jesus is a crucified Lord, a convicted felon who was, a, was killed on an execution stake. And so into that moment, we have Paul describing what it was like to share his life and the gospel with the Thessalonians. He's writing a letter to them mostly to remind them of their apostolic imitation and how they as a church became ones that others would imitate. And I believe today they're a church that we need to imitate. And in fact, if followers of Jesus were so committed to the apostolic imitation that's spoken of here by Paul about his team. We wouldn't need things like Orange Shirt Day because the church would have engaged differently. The empire might have needed it. But I tell you, the church needs it because we ignored apostolic imitation. Guilt by association, we have it in spades. And so, let's get some help. I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak of those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless 
we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. There's three pictures here that are essential for us as a church today if we're to find apostolic imitation. And there's three images, that of the child, of the nursing mother, and a father. First, Paul says, we were like children among you. Is this your typical image of the Apostle Paul, that he was childlike? We have such a terrible impression, or either Paul was deceived about himself. But he says, we were like children among you. I think he's suggesting that having left Philippi under attack, that he felt vulnerable when they came to Thessalonica. They were vulnerable. They were open. They were not powerful, but they were humble. And so they approached and entered into that new space of mission, that new community, that new people with humility. Oh, how our lives would be different if our ministers and pastors and missionaries and even the church was to engage its community with humility, not grand triumphalism. But among the Thessalonians, they came having suffered, but with pure hearts. They came having suffered for the name of Jesus, but again coming with an affirmation, seeking to please God. When things go badly, because of our obedience and responsiveness to Jesus, the temptation for us all is to somehow say, well, that didn't work out well. Maybe the problem is with God. But Paul says that they had internalized a view towards suffering that when things didn't work out when they were faithful to God, they just said, oh, I'm counted among the prophets. I'm counted even with Jesus as one worthy to suffer for his name. That's a different view towards suffering. And so they come with humility like children who are vulnerable. Do you know Jesus entered into these vulnerable moments quite often? 
he would enter into a vulnerable moment when he let someone else wash his feet with their tears. That's vulnerable. I, I don't know for you, but if you've ever had someone wash your feet, it's a vulnerable moment. It's almost ticklish. But there can also be a moment where it's like, you know, I know my feet stink at this moment. And so I feel ashamed, almost. Paul says we're entering into a vulnerable moment. Jesus entered into a vulnerable moment when he asked the woman in Samaria, could you give me a drink of water, please? Jesus entered into a vulnerable moment when he sent his disciples to go and borrow a donkey for his journey into Jerusalem. Instead of entering in as a king ready to conquer Jerusalem, he entered in as a prince of peace. He came with humility. And so it's good for us to remember the prayers we started with this morning from Psalm 130 and 131 that says, God, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to show your power and your presence. God, I'm looking to you in the dark of the night. I'm waiting for you like one waits for the morning. God, I'm so content with you that I'm trying to humble my heart with you like a baby who's content in the arms of their mother. It's our posture towards God which can set our posture towards people. If we enter into a posture towards God of entitlement, you can be sure we'll be entitled acting with others. This is where the humility comes from. The second image used by Paul here is not just the child, but the nursing mother. And I'm sure most of you have not thought of Paul as a nursing mother. But go ahead and say it. Turn to your neighbor and says, Paul says he's a nursing mother. This is different. This band of apostles are like a nursing mother. They care for the people that they're surrounded by. He says we cared for you. We loved you so much that we shared the gospel and our lives. We didn't just share a message with you. Can you imagine a nursing mother who just looks at her child and says, I love you. I love you. I love you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And then never nursed. Never nursed. Never provided. But Paul says this band of apostles, that they were like a nursing mother who provided the, later he says in Hebrews, the milk of the gospel. The digested word of God that could be easy on your stomach. That's what sermons are, mind you. Sermons are regurgitated word of God. It's better for you to go do it yourself at some point. But the sermon is meant to make it come easily so that there's easy flow 
to nutrition. You don't have to do hard work for it. But it opens it up and it's encouraging this word. I can't imagine a nursing mother who's nursing their child and angrily yelling at them at the same time. This is why typically I don't yell when I preach. We have a sound system. Apostolic preaching doesn't require loud and angry. It requires kindness and compassion like a nursing mother to speak soothingly. I know it's different. You have not thought of Paul this way. But what if our apostolic imitation was this way with, when we connect as the church in our workplaces and in our dormitories and in our classrooms and with our neighbors? What if we cared for them so much that we shared our very lives and the gospel? It wasn't one or the other. It was both. Paul says, we loved you so much that we tried not to be a burden to you. On another occasion, he describes the apostolic way and says, when we went, we robbed other churches so we wouldn't be a burden to you. We found other people to support us so that in the setting of the mission, we weren't a burden on you. Paul, in his work here, says, suggests that he's even working as a team. He was a tent maker, working with leather and sewing tents. And perhaps he even started working before he started sharing the gospel a lot with others. That he gained the reputation as one who worked. He gained a reputation as one who was honest in his work. Maybe his tents didn't leak. Maybe he had better tents. I don't know. I've wondered about the quality of his work. I'm sure it was good. Apostolic imitation means that as the church, we connect with the community like a nursing mother. We care. And then Paul says... We've connected with you like a father. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. Or beginning in verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Maybe you've not had a father like that who was comforting, who was encouraging. We often have fathers and parents, mothers, who are concerned about our futures. That's why they sent you to university. Concerned about the future. That's why they ask you, are you sure you're hanging out with the right people? They're concerned about the future. They would ask you, like, what time are you coming back? That's concern about the future, isn't it? What time are you coming in? <laughs> I hear the parents up there. <laughs> but it's this concern about the future. Who are you associated with? 
And how is that working out in your life? How are you making decisions? What's the quality of your decisions? And so there's this mix here of how the father relates. He says, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, trying to give courage. We live in a world that does create fear, that does have a lot of anxiety that goes like viruses. We live in a world that does have difficulties. And like a father, he says, I wanted to give you courage. And so in giving you courage, I also sought to give you comfort. Courage and comfort. Comfort because it's hard. And you face difficulties and you face suffering. And you needed someone to come alongside you. The word comfort suggests not just one who comes along with words, but one who comes alongside and lifts you up. To come alongside is the very word we use of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and lifts us up so that we can continue walking or crawling or dragging ourselves across the arena. And he says, this is what it means for us as the church. Apostolic imitation is to give courage and comfort. But then notice the direction of it. It's not just the future. It's also to the Lord. Paul's operating with a kind of free trust about the agency of the people he's discipling. He doesn't need to control their lives. He's not creating some kind of cult of control. He's part of God's creation of a new humanity who are able to listen to God themselves through the Holy Spirit and respond to the Word of God as the Word of God in their lives. And so he urges them Know that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. I know you live in the Roman Empire. I know you're under threat of violence. I know you're under threat of starvation. I know you're under threat. But you live now in the kingdom of God, of Christ Jesus our Lord. And your allegiance is to a different one and to a different way. And he urges them in this free trust, not a controlling father, but one who's respecting their agency to make their own decisions at the right time in their life with Christ. This is different, isn't it? What if the church... What if the mission movement of the church had been like a child, like a nursing mother, and like this kind of father? I believe that as that kind of church, we would enter our classrooms and workplaces with a sincere conviction and with joy and with courage. 
And the overflow of that kind of life would be what happened in Thessalonians. Remember, we read in chapter 1 how they welcomed the message of the gospel of Jesus in spite of severe suffering. That they had generated in their life faith, hope, and love, now by the Holy Spirit, that they had an endurance with Jesus, that they had a great love for each other and for people, and they had joy. This is a different way of connecting as church. We're most often afraid of awkward. Do awkward. Turn to your neighbor and let's say it. Let's practice. Do awkward. Do awkward. So, you know, some of you don't need encouragement for that. You're like, I do awkward all the time. (laughs) But do awkward. Be like a child who's enjoying the moment with these people, who enters into the vulnerability of it. Do awkward with each other. We're supposed to be safe for awkward. Do awkward. Do awkward with others and actually show you care. Don't just have a hard face and eye. Show you care and ask, how are you doing? And then wait. No, really, I'm asking, how are you doing? And then offer to pray. We, we, I ask people all the time, you know, can I pray for you? They say, well, yes. So then I start. Some of you have been submitted to this. I ask, how are you doing? You're like, yeah, this is going on. Well, can we pray? Can I pray for you? Yeah, and so then I just start praying, even if we're on Main Mall. Just start praying. Pray with your eyes open so you can see the skateboarder who's coming. Get out of the way. Just pray for them. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Just pray. Pray like the nursing mother holding a child. Treat them as a child who's precious, who has potential, who's deeply loved, who's known by God, and who would be embraced by the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them. But do awkward. Be like a father. Be like a parent who's concerned about their future. Take an interest in their lives. But treat them as one who's free before God to respond. In that way, you can be free of any need to manipulate, to control, to dominate, to rule. You can entrust them to God and say, you know, I'm with you. If you entrust your life to Jesus, I'm with you. At the right time for your public announcements and baptism, I'm with you. In the study of the Lord, I'm with you. In your joys, I'm with you. In your sorrows, I'm with you. I'm with you as best we can be. I'm with you. In this way, we create a church that is not just codependent on each other. 
but we are interdependent in the Lord. We are freely gifted by the Spirit of God for good works, but also for the operation of our gifts for the benefit of each other. This is why we still encourage people to gather as the church. Because in the gathering of the church, God makes into flesh his body on earth. And his spirit imparts power and grace to others. Apostolic imitation. We need more of it. There was a woman named Alice Seeley Harris. She lived for a hundred years. She was born on May 24th, 1870. She died the 24th of November, 1970. Oh, pow, mind-blowing. In her young years, she was a missionary to an area called the Free Congo. While she was there, she was devastated to see how the Belgian government under King Leopold II was abusing, oppressing, and enslaving people. In their efforts to, to extract more rubber for this new invention called the inflatable tire, they were pressing people for more. And in their efforts to get more, they would cut off a hand. They would cut off a foot. They would mutilate and devastate families and people. She was a photographer. It was an early skill in her life that she'd been developing. And when people would come to visit, she would say, would you stand over there and let me take your picture and write down your story? And she took picture after picture after picture. And then she smuggled them out of the country. And she sent them across Europe. And she sent them across North America in order to make known what the government of Belgium was doing. And it created change. She cared. She didn't just share the gospel, but she shared her life. And for the next almost 60 years of her life, it was dedicated to seeing people treated well, respectfully, with freedom, and with liberty to respond to the gospel and to have their own agency in their lives. We're so afraid of the vulnerability of the child. We're afraid to care like a nursing mother. We're afraid of the conflict that might be generated when we're like a father thinking about the future. But I encourage you, this is the life of the church. This is apostolic imitation, and it is also the imitation of Christ. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we set our lives before you this morning, and we pray that you would move us as we consider you and your table and your suffering. And we pray that Jesus himself would come and minister to us. In having heard this word, some of us may feel nervous because we recognize the suffering that has come to others, and we feel the fear of guilt by association. Would you come and minister to us and work in our lives such that we could transfer our affections and our allegiances to you? Father, would you minister to us because we might need the church to be to us like a father, like a mother, and even as a child, to just be together. And so, Father, we pray that you would reshape and revive your church today, starting with us. Come, Lord Jesus.